Welcome to Practical Christian Living. The Bible says give and it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Not because God is trying to get you to get greedy. Boy, if I give, God, people are going to give to me. God says, test me in this. Give and I will give back to you. I think that God does that because he wants us to be generous. He wants us to be generous towards the work that he does for the gospel because people need to be saved. He wants us to be generous towards those who are impoverished. Do we take the time to not just give, but to help strangers and those we know who are in need? We might make excuse after excuse as to why we can't or won't, but if we ask God to fill us with compassion and opportunity to help someone today, He absolutely will. May we always be on the lookout to love and to serve that person right there. God, give us your eyes. With more from our study out of Hebrews 13, 1 through 4, here's Robert Furrow. Stay with us. We're so glad you're here. We would want to make sure that we are not making money on the back of those who are impoverished and that we are doing whatever we can do to go out of our way to help them out because some have entertained strangers unaware, but because that's who we are. Part of our character, the first that I have is for those letters written on by the finger of God and sent out into the world as we are faithful in friendship. The second characteristic I have is that we are compassionate to others. The third verse here, same thing. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourself are in the body also. Now that phrase, since you yourself are in the body also, tells us that he's talking about Christians who are imprisoned. When we started the church in the middle of the 80s, when I would get to a message about Christians being imprisoned, I used to say, we really don't have people imprisoned for the gospel today. And I said that probably for five or six years, but I was wrong. In the mid 80s, there were people imprisoned for their faith in places like North Korea, Cambodia, different areas of the world where people were being persecuted for their faith at that time. But for every one that there was persecuted for their faith in those places, there are now a hundred around the world who are being persecuted. The number has grown dramatically so that Turkey and Egypt and Libya and the Sudan, all around the Muslim world and other places, by the way, there are those that are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. There are people who are imprisoned just because they're Christians. Now, as I look at that and I, I think about where I'm at personally and I think about where we are as a church, this is an area of lack for us. I don't know that we do anything for the church for those who are imprisoned around the world. I don't know what's available. I don't know how I could get behind and help somebody that's imprisoned in the Sudan or, or someone who's imprisoned in North Korea. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. However, I believe that if we say to God, Lord, you told us this, to remember those who are imprisoned, then God will give us what we need to do. God will help us. When we confess our lacks to him, when we confess where we're, we're coming short of the character we're supposed to have, then God will open up those doors. And I believe that with this. I believe that God will show us how we can reach out and really help prisoners that are in the persecuted church around the world. And I think personally, God's gonna show me because I want to. I don't know that I'm doing anything to help those who are persecuted in prison as Christians around the world. I want to do that. I think that God will do that. Now, not only that, though, I think that people who are in prison need our compassion, even if they are imprisoned because of something that they did. The vast majority of people in America who are in prison are not there because they are Christians. 
Now, I realize that some people came close to going to, to jail as Christians because they were giving to Christian organizations and the IRS began to target them and we're going to find them guilty of evading taxes and prison sentences were connected to that. Now, that's all been kind of turned away from now with the scandal of the IRS, but do you realize that that was happening? That they targeted people that gave to the Billy Graham organization and they were going to bring them up on charges that could result in prison sentences just because they were Christians and gave to Christian organizations. Now, we dodged a bullet for the minute, moment, but how do we know we're not headed that way? How do we know that that's not going to happen again in 10 or 20 years? That it's a scandal now, but it won't be a scandal then? We don't know. However, people in prison today are mostly there because they've done something to be there. There are some who are in prison who shouldn't be there. They are innocent, but they're rare. And there are some people in prison that thrive there. They thrive in prison more than they thrive out in the world. They've been become institutionalized or it's just who they are. They like it in there, they run the place, and they like it. But that's rare. Most people who are in prison are in the very bottom of their life. Did you know that there are neighborhoods in the United States that if you are born in, in large cities, cities like Detroit, cities like New York and Chicago, that there are neighborhoods that if you are born in, 30% of the men, of the boys born in those neighborhoods will spend at least 10 years in prison in their lifetime. Isn't that awful? Just because they're born in a neighborhood. Now, I don't know what that says about our system. I don't know that it says anything negative about our system. I don't know that it says anything positive about our system. I don't know what it says, but I know this. It says that there are people that are imprisoned just because they were born in a neighborhood. Had they been born somewhere else, they wouldn't have been influenced the way they are and they wouldn't be there. And so we ought to have compassion on those who are in prison. It's a hard ministry to be involved in, but I think it's one we should be involved in. We used to have a really strong prison ministry at the church. And then the guy who ran it, his son, started a church here in town. And so he left our church to go help his son, support his son. And I don't know, rightfully so. His son was firing up a church. His dad should be there. But now we're refiring up our, our prison ministry again. And I'm excited about it. I'm excited about us reaching out and having compassion on those who are at the very bottom of their lives. These are men who will listen to the gospel. And, and, and women, by the way, who will listen to the gospel. So it says, remember those who are prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourself are in the body also. And that falls under the character, faithful friendship, and then compassionate to others. We now have our third and final one for today. Some of you guys are saying it's about time because I'm late, but like you didn't know that was going to happen today, right? Honorable to spouses. In the old times when a novel would be written, the character was always honorable to spouses. They would never, even if an opportunity arise for them to be unfaithful, they would not be unfaithful. They would be honorable to their spouses. In new novels or new writing, it's hip to be different, right? It's hip to write people who are unfaithful and to make them the heroes and try to get people to like these unfaithful, selfish people that are out there. But as letters written by God, one of the characters that we have to have is being faithful to our spouses. It says marriage is honorable above all things right? Or marriage is honorable among all. God wants you to know, no matter how tough your marriage might be right now, one out of every two marriages ends up in a divorce. And in the church, one out of every two marriages ends up in a divorce. There is no statistical difference between not being a Christian and being a Christian when it comes to divorce. It tells us that our Christianity doesn't always seep into the most intimate parts of our lives. It tells us that we need to bring Christ into our marriages because there are few places where you can shine for Christ as much as your marriages. And listen, marriages, they struggle. And you guys may be struggling right now. You may find yourself going, I think it's done. I think it's over. The Bible says when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. It's been said that 
that marriage is like flies on a screen door. The ones in want out and the ones out want in. The ones who aren't married want married and the ones who are married want out of being married. That seems to be the way that it is. But there's a faithfulness to understanding that marriage is a good thing and that God wants us to shine in our marriages. And if your marriage is on the rocks now, if you guys are struggling, if you're really struggling with it, God can intervene. And couples who were married over 60 years, there's a poll taken about marriage by these couples. And that's a good group of people to talk to about what makes a successful marriage, right? Because they're married for so long. They said that the best year of marriage was year 34, taking health and children and income, everything into account, that the best year of marriage was year 34. And the worst year of marriage was year 10. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So you might be like, I'm at 10. It's all uphill from here, baby. Just hang in, hang in there. It's only gonna get better, all right? There really does. I know I was married to Lisa for 30 years and I gotta tell you, our marriage just kept getting better and better and better. There were struggles in the beginning. There was that passive aggressive fighting. It's funny, both me and Lisa had that in us when we were first married. You know what passive aggressive fighting is? That's when you say something really mean to your spouse with a smile on your face, right? <laughs> and then when they get upset, you say, why are you angry? Why are you yelling? I'm not yelling, you're yelling, I'm not yelling. You're so passive aggressive, right? And it's like the worst, isn't it? Because they said something really mean to you and you wanna go off the, but they're like smiling and you're like, well, because you called me a jerk, that's why I'm angry. You just did it with a smile on your face. Over time, we learned how to work those things out of our lives and the same thing is true with you guys. Those things will get worked out of your lives. Now it says that marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed undefiled meaning that God wants you faithful to one another. We live in a world that is seeking itself and seeking selfishness, even in the sexual lives. And when opportunities arise for people to be unfaithful, people are unfaithful. And God would say, the marriage bed undefiled. Be faithful, not only in friendship, but be faithful to your spouse. Run from those situations. If you find yourself in a flirtatious situation through email or in reality, get away from that. The marriage bed undefiled. But not only do I think that he's talking about affairs, in a moment he's going to say adulterers God will judge. He is talking about adultery. He's also talking about fornication. He's talking about when you guys are engaged. You dating? Are you engaged to someone? Is your marriage date coming closer? There is no more dangerous time for you falling sexually than a couple of weeks before you get married. Number one, you guys are attracted to each other sexually. It's there. If you're not, then there's a problem. If you go, not me, I don't have any temptation towards my fiance. Hmm, maybe you shouldn't be marrying them because sexuality is gonna be a big part of your marriage and there ought to be that attraction. Me and Lisa dated for a year and a half before we were married and we remained faithful until we were married, but things got more intense the last couple of weeks, especially the good night kiss because we knew we were coming to that wedding night. We knew it was coming and I was attracted to her I'm thinking she was attracted to me too. And so we had to really pull away. We had to really go, okay, no more long goodnight kisses. We just have to, good night, little peck. Okay, good night, good night. See you, see, you, see you later. Now, what if you've already fallen? What if you say, boy, you know, I've been dating this person, we've fallen sexually, or I've been, I'm engaged to this person, and we've gotten involved sexually. Well, you can still keep the marriage bed undefiled because God's a forgiver. And you can say, Lord, we're sorry. We're sorry we've done this. Forgive us and help us to give you purity from now until we're married. 
that we can give you this gift of the marriage bed being undefiled from right now until we're married. And I think that God will honor that. I believe that he will. But let me give you some practical help in really handling it, okay? I think, first of all, you got to get serious about making sure that you don't have that sexual activity in your life while you're dating. One of the ways to do that is to bring accountability in. In other words, you say, before we go on a date, let's read the Bible together. Let's sit down and read a chapter in the book of Colossians before we go out. Let's sit down and read it and talk about it before we go out. Chances on, later on, when you have the goodnight kiss and there's a move being put on by one, the person will go, what are you doing? There's nothing that will throw water on a fire quicker than the, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. Good night. Boom. Also, and preferably before the good night kiss, all right, pray together. Say, before we say good night and kiss, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this date. Thank you that we've been able to honor you throughout this date. We give you, we pray that you'd be in the middle of our relationship. Just seek God together and then give the good night kiss. It'll be a lot more in line of where it's supposed to be if you bring that accountability in before it. Now, if you're dating somebody who won't do that, well, that ought to tell you something. That ought to tell you you're not equally yoked. You ought to be dating a person that loves Jesus enough where they're gonna come alongside of you and say, yeah, I struggle. We all struggle because we have those drives. The Bible says we sin when we are enticed and everybody's enticed. There's not a person who isn't enticed. Somebody here that says, well, not me. I don't ever get tempted. Liar, liar, pants on fire, liar. You're tempted. You're just lying about it. Everybody is. And so we're enticed, but we want to make sure that we keep things together. Now, it, all, it says here, then it goes on to say in the end of verse 4, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Some of you guys, it's not the temptation to be involved sexually while you're dating or to be involved sexually while you're engaged. It's just sexual sin you've fallen into. Whether that is looking at pornography on the internet, whether that is some kind of sexual activity that you've gotten involved in on one level or another. Doesn't just mean sex, Right? It means sexual. It encompasses anything from flirtatious all the way to the actual act itself. How do you overcome it? These things become strongholds in our lives. Behavior ends up resulting in a stronghold. And the Bible talks about taking every stronghold captive by Jesus. And you say to me, I'm struggling with a stronghold. Well, listen, I understand. We've all struggled with strongholds. We've all had strongholds in our lives that we've had to take care of. And if you said to me, I'm struggling with a weak hold, now we got a problem, all right? But everybody gets a stronghold. And if you've got a stronghold that's in your life, especially if it's one of these sexual things, look, sooner or later, it's gonna turn into a scandal because the Bible says, that which is done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. So repent of it now before it is shouted from the rooftops. Battle against it now. Well, how do you battle against it? Let me get really practical. And I understand that I'm, I'm, I'm long right now. But can I just take five more minutes here and we'll wrap it up? I want to get really practical. How is it that I battle against, let's just say that I'm struggling with alcohol and every couple of weeks I'm getting drunk. And it usually starts with, you know, I have a right to have a beer. And a beer goes to two beers and then to four beers and six beers. And the next thing you know, you got a DUI. Okay? Well, you had a right to have a beer and now you got a DUI or another DUI maybe. Okay? And you're looking at whatever happening that's just awful and it's just, it's just horrible. How do you win over that? How do you win over that sexual temptation on the internet, the pornography that is there? How do you win over it when you've struggled with it for years? Well, Jesus said this in John 15, abide in me and let my word abide in you. 
and you will ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. In other words, the way your desires change is for you to abide in Jesus and God's word to abide in you. It's about getting serious with abiding with Jesus. It's about spending time with him. It's about gathering together in fellowship. It's about reading his word and living it. I'm not talking about passively doing it. I'm talking about getting serious. Some of you guys try to go on a diet, but you're not serious. You say, I'm gonna go on a diet and lose some weight. So you, you stop fried foods and Cokes. You don't do anything about all the sour cream and cheese that you're eating, okay? You're still eating all that. And first it works a little bit. You drop a few pounds because you've gone from 6,000 calories a day to 4,000 calories a day. And in doing that, there's some help. But pretty soon you hit that plateau and you don't lose anymore, right? Because you're not serious about it. When you really get serious about it and you start to go, what? As a man, I'm supposed to only eat 2,500 calories a day? What? I've been eating 6,000 a day. No wonder I'm struggling. And you get serious about it. You got to do things like not have your quiet time in a donut shop. <laughs> right? You got to change the things that you like and the things that you eat. And it happens. It does. You start to eat right. And pretty soon you start to crave those things that are right instead of those things that aren't. And if you've gone through a diet, you understand what I'm saying. If you haven't, I don't know what to tell you. But if you have, you got to get serious about it in order to really do it. Okay? Same thing is true with Christ. You want to overcome those strongholds? They are strongholds. They are not easily going to be overcome. And you have to get serious about following him, abiding with him and his word abiding in you. And your desires will change. And how you know you're winning is not because you all of a sudden say, I will never look at the internet again, or I will never go to a racy movie again, or I will never get involved sexually in that way again. It's not because you do that, but it's because you've spent so much time with Jesus over here that when you are enticed, remember, James tells us that each of us sin when we are enticed. So that's the beginning. When you're enticed, you go, you're enticed by it, but you go, I don't want to do it. That's when you're winning. That's when you're defeating the stronghold. Not because I don't want to do it because bad things are going to happen to me, but because, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm tempted, but I don't want it. Ever done that with a movie? You know that a movie's bad and you get ready to go and you just go, you know what? I just don't want to go. That's when you know you're growing spiritually. That's when you know you're abiding in Christ and his word is abiding in you because your desires change. And even though you're enticed and tempted, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. And even though you're enticed and tempted because you're abiding with him and his word is in you, you're not wanting to do those things anymore. There's a change that takes place. You suddenly have the willpower and you don't desire them anymore because your desires change. The Bible says the same thing in another way in another passage. It says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he is going to reap. And if you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you'll reap corruption. And if you sow to the spirit, from the spirit you'll reap life. You are free. You can do whatever you want to do. You can leave today and you can go watch whatever you want to watch tonight. Paul said, we of all people are the most free. But then Paul said this, but as for me, I want to do those things that edify me. So Paul in his freedom chose to feed the spirit. And since the, battles, the spirit battles against the flesh and the flesh battles against the spirit inside of you, when you start to sow seeds to the spirit, when you start to pray, when you start to go to church, when you start to get together with fellowship with other Christians, when you and your spouse starts making, making the things of God a priority in your life, when you begin to listen to Christian music together or just those kind of things, you, you sow seeds to the spirit and that causes you to want it more. And when you do that, it sows seed to the spirit until the spirit that you have grows into this strong tree that is able to stand. 
But if you sow to the flesh, you look at those things on that internet, or you get involved sexually with that person, or you go that, every time you do it, you're sowing seeds of the flesh. And from those seeds that are planted, there's a new crop that comes up. And there's more of a crop that comes up. And so you do it again and you sow more seeds and you do it again and there's more seeds and you do it again and there's more seeds. So the way you fight against this progression that gets out of control until the flesh is this strong, powerful monster that controls you. Where your flesh says, I want this. And you're like, okay, let's go do it then. You just give in to your flesh right away. The way to battle it is to sow seeds to the spirit. So this week, practically, you could say, I'm not gonna sow to the flesh, but I'm gonna sow to the spirit. I'm going to not do that. Normally, I would be tempted and I would give into it, but I'm not going to do it because I know if I do that, it's going to sow seeds. I'm going to do it again and again and again, and I'm not going to control it. It's just lies and deception. The sin is so deceptive for you to think I can handle it. I can handle it and I can take care of it. So you instead, you sow to the spirit. What kind of things can I do today that are edifying? What kind of things can I do tonight that are edifying? How can I sow to my spirit to make my spirit stronger so that the things that I desire will be the things of God? Now, the last thing he says here in this verse is adulterers and fornicators, God will judge. So that if in all of my talking here, and I haven't talked about how bad fornication is or how bad adultery is, because I don't think I need to spend 10 minutes talking about it to Christians. You guys already know when you've fallen sexually, you are, you are crushed by it. If you're a real Christian, you're crushed by it. You fall sexually and you tell God, I'm sorry, and you're crushed by it, and you don't want to do it, you just don't know what to do sometimes. You're just completely lost. How do, I, how do I win over this? We know how bad it is. But some of you here may be listening to me and going, yeah, 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 yeah. What would you expect a preacher to say? You're saying what I expect you to say, and I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. I'm going to keep on looking on the internet. I'm going to keep on being involved with that chick. I'm going to keep on doing what I'm, what I'm doing. Well, have you forgotten that God disciplines those he loves. And that if you have an attitude, fornication and adultery, sexual sin is okay, then you are under the disciplinary hand of God. And here's the thing, discipline is to correct. We try to correct our children and they don't listen, their behavior isn't corrected, we get more stern and we get more stern and we get more stern. God does the same thing. God begins to discipline you and you don't listen and you go, no, I'm gonna do it. No, I'm gonna do it. No, next thing you know, you're in the woodshed being beaten by God. And you're saying, why is my life such a mess? Because you won't repent. Because you think it's okay. Because you won't battle against it. You have no struggle against sin. You say, struggle against sin? I don't struggle against sin. I just give in. I'm tempted, I give in. There's no struggle that's there. We all have to have that struggle against sin. And when we say, Lord, I'm sorry, the disciplinary hand of God is taken away. Could it be that right now, some of the things that you're facing and going through, I'm not saying all, I'm saying some, could be the discipline of God. Maybe for some of you, because you settled into such sin, and as a Christian, God loves you, and he doesn't want those things destroying your life because sin is deceptive and destructive. Those things destroy. God doesn't want you doing it because they are destructive. And so his loving hand is disciplining you. And the way that you could avoid that discipline right now is to turn and repent and say, okay, I am now going to try to sow to the spirit and not to the flesh. I'm going to abide with Jesus and let his word abide in me so my desires change. And then we are not salt that's lost its savoriness. See, the, the salt that's involved in sexual stuff, the salt that's selfish, the salt that doesn't care about the poor, the salt that doesn't care about people who are struggling and suffering, the salt that doesn't have brotherly love has lost its saltiness and is good for nothing but to be trampled on the road. And instead, we want our lives to count, don't we? 
I mean, don't we want the cause? Don't we want people to see Christ in us? So we want to be those written epistles that have the proper character that we're supposed to have. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kgun 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.